Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. Created by Notation Capital, sponsored by Sapphire Ventures. You can find us online at notationcapital.com or back us on AngelList. Hello, I'm Nick. I'm a partner at Notation Capital. I'm with... I'm Alex, also a partner at Notation Capital. And we're here with Josh Abramson today, who is the founder and CEO of Busted Tees and Tea Public, and formerly founder at Connected Ventures that built things like College Humor and Vimeo and uh, and Busted Tees, I guess, which you can tell yeah. us a little bit of the backstory there. Accurate. Uh, they sold that company to IAC. And so Josh is based here in New York, does a little bit of angel investing here and there as well, and is also an investor in a couple of venture funds, which we can discuss a little bit later. But thank you for doing this with us, Josh. We're excited to have you. Uh, so I guess if we should can start at the very, very beginning, sure. it'd be great to just understand a little bit of the origin story behind Connected Ventures sure. and um, and how you ultimately started that business with, with your partners. Yeah. So... I started College Humor um, my freshman year of college. Um, I, you know, basically just had this idea that I wanted to start a business on the internet um, to make money to pay for beer and things like that. It was right. really not super ambitious. It was mostly just a means to not have to like work at the bookstore or do like a typical campus job. Um, what, what year was this? It was 1999. Okay. So my brother happened to be working at advertising.com as one of their early employees and was just sort of like telling me about how internet advertising was working at that point in time, which it was also sort of pre, pre-bubble bursting. So um, making money on ads on a website was as easy as just like putting code on a page and just like collecting checks. Like you really just like had to generate page views and the network ads at that time were substantial enough from a CPM basis where you could basically just get, you know, call it like two or $3 CPM on right. as many page views as you could possibly generate. <laughs> so once I sort of learned that fact, I was sort of, you know, intrigued by what can I do to, you know, basically build a media business. Although I didn't know that that was what a media business was for like many years. Like when someone said I had a media business for the first time, I was like, oh, I guess that's, that's right. 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 Um, so I never set out to build a media business. I just, you know, simply set out to figure out a way to get people's eyeballs on a web page so I could make money. So it was as simple as that. Um, and you, yeah, where did you go to school? I went to University of Richmond. Okay. Uh, in Virginia. So basically the idea so you're for- in Virginia, you're like, I got to build a website and get people there. Yeah, basically. And my, right. my best friend from growing up, um, his name is Ricky Van Veen, was a, uh, he knew how to actually build websites, which I didn't know how to do. Um, he wasn't a developer, but he could like build a, you know, a front page site. And you were in college together or? We weren't. He went to Wake Forest. So okay. a couple hours away. Um, you went to high, you knew each other from yeah, high school. Yeah, actually since yeah. middle school, since okay. we were in like sixth grade. So we, um, and we knew we wanted to do something together. Um, so we, you know, I bought the domain college humor. The idea was really. How much that, did it cost? Uh, I think it was like, what did domains cost that back then? $35 or <laughs> okay. nice. something like that. Um, I feel like they were more expensive then. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so at that point, there was really no website that was popular that you could go to to like find funny stuff. This was obviously years before YouTube or, um, you know, any other really right. content websites. And not that they didn't exist entirely, but... Um, the way that people were sharing funny things in my dorm room freshman year in 1999 was literally having a folder on their desktop that was just full of like funny pictures and videos. And you would literally just like go to each other's room right. and it was like, it's like, dude, like show me what you got on, you know, like, and someone would have like the picture <laughs> of like, your hard drive. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, the, you know, guys got like, you know, the video of like the kid who like, you know, gets hit in the back of the head with a shovel. That was like the first video that I really remember from being on College Humor. And it's like, oh, that's hilarious. You got to email me that. And like, right. that's literally how we, people were sharing stuff. And Like a degree away from like a physical scrapbook almost. Yeah. And, um, and then people would have like their computers on the network and you could like go on to their machine and like take off like funny pictures and stuff. So that was really the idea was like, oh, I'll just take all of this stuff that has like been aggregated in my dorm room and just put it on a website. So that was really the idea for College Humor. Um, At what point did you start thinking about it as we're building a business here? This is something we might do for a while versus we want to make money on the side. This is fun. People will use it. So we we launched 
like the first week of January 2000. And by March, I think in March, we got like a $10,000 check from our, wow. our like ad network, which is like more money than both of us had made in aggregate in like our entire lives up until that point. And probably. Who was, who, how did you get people to the site? So you know, like the first thing I did was um, I put, I like made flyers with like funny jokes and like wow. images on them and put collegehumor.com on it and put mm -hmm. them over the urinals in the guy's dorm in at Richmond. And people started coming to the site and it worked. So then I drove to like every school within wow. a couple hours and literally just like put up flyers. And it was like, you know, a couple hundred bucks worth the flyers. And you could see, you know, traffic was now coming from like different places. And um, that was how we got the initial audience there. Um, so, you know. And in the early days, it was mostly funny photos. Yeah. You were maybe a lot of writing pictures. some articles. It wasn't really, you know, remember back then there wasn't, it, it, like video was just like really choppy and like it mm -hmm. wasn't easy to download videos and, and you had to download them. There weren't like players like in sight. So, so it was mostly pictures um, in the beginning. And, uh, and also, I mean, we benefited from the fact that like, Obviously, if you went into like a bathroom now and you saw a flyer for like a comedy website, like the last thing you would do is be like, oh, I got to go check that out, you know, but at the time it was sort of, you know, That's novelty. Awful. So, um, so we started, we grew really quickly in the beginning. And, um, and what year, what year were you in school at the time? So this was still my freshman year. Oh, wow. Okay. And, um, and then by the summer, and again, this is like the bubble had like. Mm. had not burst yet. So like we were getting just like crazy people were like flying us across the country to have meetings and like, you know, we're 18. Like it was just, it was like, all very, like VCs, investors. not VCs. Like, um, you know, we went to, we flew to like Indianapolis to meet with like a company that wanted to do like merchandising and like, right. just like, we didn't even know what like a meeting was yet. Like, you know, we just graduated high school. So everything was just very exciting. And that summer were you going to class. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to class. Um, I, you know, this was not like a Mark Zuckerberg situation. Right. <laughs> like, we're right. not, you know, it was just, it was still like, it, it was very exciting, but it, it wasn't, I never thought like, oh, this is like a business. This is like a thing I'm going to be doing like for 15 years. Like, it never occurred to me until like much later. Mm -hmm. So that summer we had an offer, a company named Efront, which was like a pre-IPO, you know, house of cards, but they made us an offer to buy the business for $9 million. And this was like six months after we launched. Wow. Um, I remember like getting the term sheet and like showing my mom and like, just like freaking out. Most of it um, was in stock. And if we had done the deal, like we wouldn't have gotten mm. that much, you know, they ended up going bankrupt like a year later. So we didn't do that deal, but it was just like, why didn't you do it? Um, because the way that the bulk of the, compensation was going to come was a function of our continued audience and like ad revenue that we would generate. So it's basically saying like, you know, this was at a time when you would just value a property on like, all right, you generate this many page views. Like we know that, you know, page views worth this CPM and like, it's, you know, there was no thought of like, oh, we actually have to go sell this. It was just like, you just plug in ads and like, that's what it's worth. So we- And so you guys were like, we can just keep doing what we're doing. Exactly. And Make, make money, however much money. Yeah. And so, right. so we did a deal with another company that was a venture funded business trying to um, target college students, um, like both on campus and with events and online. And they did a deal where they sort of like, it was sort of an option to acquire the business down the road for like a pretty high number. I think it was like $15 million or something. And then in the meantime, you know, they gave us like money to, to do this deal. And then we would just get this like ad revenue basically, um, on top of it. Um, so it, it just made more sense. And ultimately that company went under as well. And we sort of, you know, got the business back and everything else, but it was, um, you know, it was, it, it ended up being, you know, this, uh, like very exciting couple of years where. So did you, did you stay in, in school? Mm -hmm. through to the end while you were running college. Training. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting is, so like that deal I just mentioned, we're now like working with this bigger company. They're sending us a check for like, you know, $15,000 every month. We have no expenses. So it's just like, it's a huge amount of money for right. a college kid. And we're just like super pumped about like this thing, right? And- um, Were your college buddies just like, how the, yeah, how the I mean, hell it was are you like, doing this? It was also, I think like, being a college entrepreneur today is like 
super typical. Like you see a ton of them, like everybody's seen the social network, like, but back then it was pretty unique, especially at a school like Richmond, which isn't like, you know, it's pretty vanilla. Like most kids who graduate from Richmond go on to be in, in like finance or lawyers or like, you know, it's just not, there's not a huge like creative mm. class of people at that school. So, so yeah, it was pretty unique. I mean, I was like, yeah, I was, I was psyched about it, but it was interesting because I wasn't really building a business yet. We had sort of like stumbled into this lucky thing. We were making money on it, but it wasn't until that other company sort of severed our deal. And we were like, all right, now we have to start paying our hosting bills and mm. we have to figure out how to like actually make money selling something on our site. That was when I think I really started to like learn how to like run a business and, and understood like what made these digital properties valuable or not. And, um, I remember, you know, so like we basically got the business back. Um, and then this was my junior year. So okay. it's like, so 2001, um, or 2002. Anyway, so we were basically, um, at this point where we had to figure out like, how do you actually make money on a website? We have millions of people that are coming to it every day, every month. Um, but you know, the idea of like selling a branded advertisement was like completely, you know, out. We didn't know how to do that right. at all, nor were we in a place to do that. So sort of had to figure out like, you know, what can we run to just try and make money on this audience? So I was testing all kinds of stuff. Like, you know, how about like, we'll advertise like DVDs on Amazon and see if people buy that. And like, that didn't work. Like, what about like posters? And then like, all right, well that works a little bit. Or like, what about t-shirts? And like t-shirts works. Um, and, uh, and just sort of like cobbled together do why like do you testing. think that was just because it fit your audience and yeah, I mean, it's just the way, yeah. I mean, it's like, <clears throat> you know, when you think about, um, like any audience, like what, um, I mean, when you're selling brand advertisements, it's sort of in many ways irrelevant whether or not it's like working like the, you know, as long as the client thinks it works, then you're okay. But when you're actually selling like a direct, you know, or, or you know, using your traffic to generate sales through affiliate links and that sort of thing. Like that's like where you really like cut your teeth on like figuring out, you know, how all this stuff works and, right. and where value actually is. And, um, if you can, you know, create, and that's when we started, you know, we'd like create links to send people to like, all right, you know, it's the beginning of the year. Like you need to get posters for your dorm room and like here, are like posters we think are awesome. And then we would like actually sell posters through allposters.com and then we would get a check. And like, that was sort of how we were able to cobble together a real business, Again, the numbers were pretty small at that point, but it kept us going. And then for the next two years, I really just grinded it out every day and tried to, you know, both, you know, build traffic on the site as best we could. And then, you know, figuring out how to just like sell these little ads. And a lot of it was, you know, like I think when I graduated, we probably had like a hundred clients per month, people spending like hundreds of dollars or maybe a couple thousand, but like mm. small, very small aggregate um, revenue, but it was just like, you know, truly grinding. Right. Um, and that going was going to class in the morning, home yeah. in the afternoon, running the business at night. And yeah, then, exactly. Right. And at that point I also, we decided I'd had a banking internship somewhere after my junior year of college. And like right at the beginning, I had decided with, uh, my co-founder Ricky that we were going to do this after school, which was sort of, it seems like obvious in hindsight, but at that, up until that time, it was sort of the idea of running a site, a college humor website after college seemed mm. kind of silly to me. And mm. I didn't think that I would actually ever do that. So, um, so when we made that decision, it sort of, you know, took us on this path of like, all right, I don't really care about getting like A's in my classes. Like this is, this is what's important. Mm. So that was pretty, uh, you know, it was a meaningful like moment in, in time we decided we were going to live together and like move somewhere cool after college. It never occurred to us to move to New York or San Francisco or anything. We were just like, we're going to go live on the beach in San Diego, which seemed like a good idea. Right. <laughs> we got there and like it took like two weeks for us to realize that maybe it wasn't all, you know, <laughs> all we thought it was going to be. We just had a really hard time meeting friends, you know, meeting new mm -hmm. people. And, um, it worked out to be a really great year for us because we were living and working together. At that point we had brought on a, a third partner, um, who was, you know, a coder and like actually you could build stuff. That? Jake Lodwick. Yep. Um, so the three of us were living and working together. And you considered at the time you considered him a co-founder. Yeah, I mean, he was, he joined College Humor, um, you know, it had been a couple years um, when he like really joined in earnest. Um, but at that point, yeah, I mean, he was, you know. Uh, How did you meet him? 
he emailed us and was like, your site looks horrible. I can make it better. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So he, and, you weren't uh, in school with him or anything? No. Yeah. Although we grew up a mile apart from each other, okay. weirdly. Wow. Um, but yeah, he was at RIT. And um, so at that point, you know, I and feel like- And he worked remotely, basically making the website after yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And um, so when we moved to San Diego, I always had this idea of, just like it seemed like intuitive to me, the idea of um, if we're just like doing good work every day and like trying to like build cool stuff, like we'll figure something out. And um, we didn't really know like what the thing was gonna be. And I just sort of had like faith that like, all right, well like college humor, I never thought of college humor as being the thing. I thought this is making us enough money so we don't have to go get real jobs. And then we'll try and, you know, come up with something better. That was like always my thought. Right. So when we and started- And is that why you, is the company was called Connected Ventures. So did you, and, and you ultimately, I mean, we'll get to it, but you ultimately built a few things. So did you have, so it seems like you had that thought in your- Connected Ventures was beginning. like a name that we thought sounded important and professional when we were 18. <laughs> right. And <laughs> had nothing to do with, it was totally okay. coincidence. And okay. that name was there from the beginning? Mm -hmm. We just needed an LLC and we're like, right. what sounds what sounds like good for a business card, you know? And um, nice. what's funny is my other company that I am running today was a similar situation. When we started selling merchandise, you know, my dad was like, oh, you should start a separate LLC for like liability purposes. So I was like, okay. And like, so we, we had this like inside joke at the time about this thing called like a brain buster. And it was just like a stupid thing that like isn't even worth going into, but we thought it was funny. So like, oh, we'll call it brain buster enterprises LLC. And that's what my company's called today. Cause I, you know, it's still, it was just too ch challenging to like rename it. So like every right. time I have to say that, I'm like, oh, why didn't we think of a better name? Like I never Stop knew I'd be it. saying it like 15 years later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> One time we named uh, an LLC mur Million Dollar Murder Records and we were trying to do a deal with MTV and they said that we had to change the name or else they wouldn't do the deal with that's it. That's hilarious. <laughs> anyway, so... Who's the, who's the pharma guy? That sounds like one of his names. Screlly. Oh, uh, uh, Screlly. Right, that sounds like a name you'd have. <laughs> right. um, um, so anyway, so yeah, we started, you know, like I said, a lot of what we were doing was just figuring out like what worked to like actually sell stuff to customers because our, our users, because we hadn't really figured out brand advertising yet. So t-shirts was like the thing that we were making the most of our money from. And it was other, you know, there are a couple of t-shirt websites at that time and they were all like just sending us checks every month and they were like our biggest advertisers. So that was the idea for like, okay, well, I think we can come up with t-shirts that are just as good, if not better than these other guys. So why don't we just start selling t-shirts? So we started Busted Tees. Um, I think Busted launched at the beginning of 2004 and um, quickly grew to be as big as College Humor, like in months. Hmm. And um, and were you selling, I, I forget, I mean, it was, was Busted, you were selling the site, uh, selling the shirts on College Humor or you were sending no. people out to Busted Tees? We like were, we first tried to sell college, like a College Humor t-shirt store, like on collegehumor.com and they were like College Humor branded and we sold like 20, like it huh. just didn't work at all. Huh. And it wasn't until we sort of realized that I think we need to start a separate brand that is like, you know, its own like independent business that we use our traffic from College Humor to, mm. you know, direct audience to this site. And that's what um, ultimately worked. And I think you see a lot of companies that I think make that mistake where they try to go into commerce by having it under the same brand as their mm. content mm. business. And I well, think you it's see that hard. all the time now. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. see this combination of content and commerce now. I mean, that's a huge theme. Yep. Uh, you know, now it's 2004, we're thinking, um, or maybe like this is our destiny to be like t-shirt entrepreneurs. Um, so we started kind of focusing on that business. And then- and Were you in New York at the time? No, so we moved to New York that summer. So summer 2004, at which point like College Humor had like started to really get a lot of momentum. And then all of a sudden like brand advertisers started calling and like we're getting deals with Toyota and you know, mm. deals that were like 10X what we were getting mm. three months earlier. So like really, you know, it, it changed very quickly. Um, and then all of a sudden we started, you know, meeting all these like fancy media people in New York and we sort of got the idea that like, oh, this college humor business is actually really valuable potentially. Um, and then the teacher business sort of got like pushed to the side because I was confident that if we we're going to sell a business, it was going to be, you know, the media business. Um, so we're still in 2004, end of 2004, um, my partner Jake shows me this little project he was working on called Vimeo, um, which, you know, 
he was making a lot of videos and at the time there was no website that allowed you to upload a video as a non-developer um, where you could just like go, you know, select the video and have it upload and play on a website. So Vimeo was so the first was site. pre before YouTube. Yeah, it was a couple. Uh, I think YouTube launched in January of 2005 and we launched in December of 2004. So we were like, you know, we, we beat them to the punch a little bit. Never had the vision for like what YouTube ultimately became mm. or even what Vimeo is today, frankly. Like we, um, you know, like I said, we were building, we built another dozen businesses that you've never heard of because they just didn't work, right? So like, we were just like building a lot of stuff and that was the idea is like, you know, it's not like we had stumbled into like a big business. Like College Humor was still small by like, you know, big business standards. So right. we were thinking like, let's just keep trying to like throw stuff against the wall. Um, and you were all in the same room in New mm-hmm. York at this time. Yep. Zach Klein was also yeah, part at that of point, the company? So Zach joined full time like the day we moved to New York basically. Okay. And what was his role? He was like a product and design okay. guy. Um, How did you decide where to focus your time, right? Because now you have three products, College Humor, Busted Tees, and Vimeo, and you're, I guess, building 12 other on the side. Yeah. How do you figure out how to spend your time and resources and energy? Yeah, I mean, it was it was very like intuitive, I guess, in terms of... Uh, um, you can kind of look back and be like, well, I was strategically thinking that I would do it this way. Right. Right? I mean, but the truth was we were just, you know, kids like trying our best and just like doing what felt naturally. And um, it wasn't like we had like, you know, we didn't have a budget. We didn't have like forecasts. We didn't have any of that stuff. It was just like we're I mean, there was a point in time where we were the four of us. So Zach, Jake, Ricky, myself, um, we were running College Humor Busted Tees Vimeo. Um, we had built a social networking site for college kids pre Facebook, but it wasn't, it didn't work. It was, we just got it wrong. Um, uh, and then we had, um, a couple other like little projects we were working on, like another t-shirt site that was like more high end and like, you know, so we're, and it was just the four of us and we were just like, like, Oh, maybe. And then one day it occurred to me like, Oh, we should hire people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, uh, so, and you hadn't raised money. You never raised money. People must have approached you based on the success of the business. Not really. really. I mean, that's the other thing is like, was it something you, know, you thought about, or it just was you thought we're making money? I this didn't is know. Growing well, I don't. I didn't really know like how venture capital worked. I didn't know. I certainly wasn't getting approached by VCs. Hmm. I'd never met a VC. Um, I'd never met anybody who was like a professional investor before. Again, it, like 2004 was a totally different world in terms of like, you know, I think in today's world, like the 22 year old kids who are like building stuff in like a loft in New York, like have probably met like every investor. You know what I mean? Right. Like <laughs> it's just a, and, you know, this was pre TechCrunch. This was pre, like you, there was no like literature on like, you know, Fred Wilson didn't have a blog yet. Like, right, you know, right. there's no blueprint. Yeah, exactly. So I think the lack of role models for us was helpful in some ways. And I think in other ways it, you know, you sort of, we missed having the benefit of, of that. So, um, for better, or for worse. So, yeah, so it was a sort of a unique time to be doing this kind of stuff. Um, it wasn't until, you know, 2005 that we started to then, you know, people were sort of hovering and, we had um, like all at once, it seemed like MTV wanted to buy the business. So we went down the path of selling MTV. They sort of left us at the altar a bit. Um, which had you a, hired anybody? So you said yeah, you were we, thinking about hiring some folks. We'd hired some people at this yeah. point. Um, we now all of a sudden had like a banker at Allen and Company who was working with us because the, um, you know, Viacom was like, we want to buy the business. So I was like, okay, I guess they're supposed to have a banker. I don't know. Like, <laughs> and Allen Company, I think they're supposed to be good. So right. um, that was sort of how that happened. And then they ultimately passed. News Corp looked at the company pretty closely and ultimately passed. And um, the, the MTV thing was like, I was like so confident that it was going to happen. And again, like as a younger person, you don't realize like how hard it is to like actually like cross the finish line on some of these things. So you know, I'd like told my parents I'm like selling the company to MTV. Right. You know, it's like so it was a bit of a a letdown. And then were you were you psychologically like spending the money already? Yeah, I was looking at apartments. Right, so right, I was like, right. totally shopping. Hundred percent. Um, fortunately, the business at that point was really profitable. We were operating at like a fifty percent net margin, so um, we were fine. But and we didn't really need capital. Um, 
maybe it would have, you know, knowing what I know now, we would, I would have known that we were going to eventually, but it didn't seem like we ever would at that point. Um, so in 2006, the beginning of that year, when we ultimately sold the business to IC, we were, uh, we had term sheets from a bunch of like kind of later stage VC types to write a, a bigger check really for liquidity, not as much to put money in the business, but we were, you know, again, it's, it's easier to raise money when you have a business that's operating at that kind of margin. Yeah. And we just were like, all right, we'll sell. We'd like to sell like a third of the business and just like take some money off the table so that mm-hmm. we can just have like personal liquidity. And right around that time was when IAC came to the table and said that they would be interested in buying the company. So sort of went down that path. And um, and then in August of 2016 is when we sold the business. Um, 2006. 2006. Yeah, right. Correct. Not, so not about in almost, the future from now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so almost 10 years ago now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Knowing... Uh, in hindsight, I mean, talk to me a little bit about uh, uh, after selling the company, like selling the baby that you started mm-hmm. in your freshman yep. college dorm room. Um, and and also to a certain degree, I mean, obviously there's 2020 hindsight, but given uh, just how large Vimeo and some of the other products are today, how you, yeah. how you think so, about that? So, I mean, my thinking at the time was, all right, we're selling... We're selling 51% and we have a put option to require them to buy the rest at a certain point in the future. So it was guaranteed exit, guaranteed liquidity for like all of our stake. And yet it still felt like at least looking at the deal at that moment in time, we still have the option to like really grow this thing and make a lot more money. And um, that seemed like a good trade off. Um, you know, we'll get some liquidity now and like we could build this thing. Um, the way it played out was a little bit differently because first off, you know, and I talked to a lot of people, I think when you're really young and you don't necessarily like want to listen to people, like you sort of, you know, someone tells you something you don't want to hear and you just kind of like don't hear it. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are definitely people who said, you're not going to like working for Barry Diller. He's really tough. You know, all of the things you would expect someone to say. And I just really didn't pay any attention to it. I, I was, you know, just kind of like, somebody was like handing me a check for like more money than like I thought I would ever make in my life, frankly. So it was hard to just like, it's like, all right, like, I don't care. It's like, I'll sell myself to the devil. Yeah, exactly. And then the first year was fine. Um, You know, the company was continuing to grow. We hired a lot more people. We were still like living and working in like our same, we had an office space in our Mm -hmm. like same building that we were living in. We didn't have to really transition to their culture as much. Correct. And then, um, it started to get a little dicey, you know, in like year two because we just didn't hit the goals that we had set for ourselves, and um, and the business, the growth just started to slow. So it went from like kind of like feeling like we're getting high fives in the conference room to like getting, you know, a little bit more poked and prodded and and um, mm, managed. Yeah, and then, you know, it sort of became clear you know, call it like around year two, end of year two, beginning of year three, that um, while I had the ability to run the business day to day, like any of the bigger decisions or bigger things that we needed to do were not my decision at all. Um, And that's, you know, that really changes things um, from like an operational perspective. Like you want to, you know, you want to do a big deal. You want to like have like a fundamental shift in strategy and like you just, your hands are tied and you have to like convince this like very, high energy billionaire who is like scary as hell, you know, to agree with you, you know, it's, it's hard. And when you don't have experience in the room like that, um, it's hard to get your point across and be clear and articulate. Um, so there were a lot of times when you sort of walk out of this meeting with Barry and like having signed up for like a site redesign that like you fundamentally disagree with or like doesn't feel right to you, but like you just couldn't argue your point. And so there were a lot of like those types of things. Um, although, although Ricky, your partner, Still, still is at IAC, correct? And is he still working on those products and businesses? Um, so we we stopped working on Vimeo probably in two thousand nine, I think. Um, what, what essentially happened was Vimeo was we had made the decision to invest more in Vimeo. So we went to Barry. We said hey, we have a plan for Vimeo. We think this could be really cool. Um, here's how we do it. So we went and we hired a dozen people, like amazing team of people and, um, and started, you know, going. And then, you know, a year later, the business is now losing a couple million dollars a year. Um, 
it's growing on the audience side, but we have no idea how it's going to become profitable or like a mm-hmm. real business. And the way that our deal was structured, it was going to be hard for us to really get value out of this thing because we couldn't sell it to Google or something. You know, IEC mm-hmm. already owned it, it already bought it. So unless IEC decided to sell it, which was unlikely, we had to like actually build a profitable business or else we wouldn't be able to like claim that it had value necessarily to IEC and like the way that our put was structured. So it was sort of, we had incentives that just weren't aligned. Hmm. And, um, and then we also had the, you know, this sort of situation where, you know, we owned half of Vimeo and we owned or 49% of Vimeo and we owned 49% of College Humor and 49% of Busted Tees. College Humor and Busted Tees were profitable. Vimeo was not. And, we were now losing more money with Vimeo than we were making on the other businesses. So if you looked at our balance sheet, you know, and kind of played it out a couple of years and Vimeo continued to lose more and more money. If college humor was worth, you know, 50 or hundred million dollars or whatever, and Vimeo had had lost 50 or hundred million dollars, then we right. were left with nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had, you know, again, this sort of misaligned interest of, we wanted to protect the value of our core business that we knew had value and wasn't going away and was hugely meaningful to us. And at the same time had this other business that had promise, but, you know, it's basically like betting half of your net worth in like a, you know, series A startup. You know, that's what, that was the deal that we were sort of had a gun to our head and had to, you know, decide um, what we were going to do and ultimately decided that we wanted to sort of give up our our stake in equity in exchange for not having to continue to fund it. And um, which was a little bit frustrating at the time, you know, I tried to like keep some equity and we were sort of forced to not be allowed to do that. And what was frustrating is I think the essence of our deal, although it wasn't really written in, you know, in ink, which is, <laughs> a, you know, turns out to be a problem. Right. Um, but, you know, the idea was like, you know, we want you guys to come in here. We want you to build stuff like we're going to fund it. Um, it just didn't really feel like consistent with the essence of the deal that we had made. Mm-hmm. But you know, was consistent with sort of like the legal documents. Right, right. <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, that was the situation we were in. Um, and then again, like you sort of, it's, it's also very hard to go to bat for yourself when you're still working for someone and they're, you know, this like very iconic person and um, the combination of not really feeling, you know, super confident that the business is going to become what it's become today combined with the fact that like we still, I still wanted to stay working there for a while because I was working on this other thing. You know, it's just, it was a very tricky spot to be in. Um, And you sort of realize like once you're in that situation and, you know, um, working for somebody else and, you know, it's not the same as just being like an independent entrepreneur. It's very, very different. Um, Again, and it's when those like big moments, um, like inflection points in the business or investments or, you know, how you're going to like, you know, pivot or, or not. Um, that's when it really becomes clear. Like I'm working for someone else. I'm an employee. I'm not, you know, and I mean, what did you even have it have to compare it to at that point? Because you and your partners had had basically total control to that point, right up to that point and hadn't really worked for anyone else ever. Right. And so it's hard to anticipate what that situation is going to feel like or the challenges without, without having dealt with it before. Yeah. Yep. You know, at that point, was really unhappy. Um, I'd gone from, you know, the most like fun thing I'd ever done in my life was build this business and felt so emotionally attached to it and really like identified with it. Like, you know, people, when I met them for the first time would meet me as like the college humor guy, you know, right. it was sort of this, this thing, um, that was really special. And then, you know, it's sort of hard to like pull yourself away from that. And, um, and, you know, sort of acknowledge like, all right, I'm not happy anymore doing this work. Um, I'm not exactly sure why. And, you know, now in hindsight, I can see very clearly why, but at that point you're sort of, you know, it's like, am I, was this a fluke? Like, am I going to be able to do this again? Mm -hmm. Like maybe I just got really lucky. Like I'm kind of, you know, it's like, it's scary to go and leave that kind of cushy, what's now like a cushy corporate job. Right. Um, and then, you know, that was sort of when the opportunity to buy the teacher business back um, presented itself. I was looking to leave. They wanted to sell that business. Um, I had some, you know, a bit of leverage because they had renewed my deal. And this so, is busted tees. So, so they decided. Why did they want to sell? 
they never really, I mean, Barry, I had to beg him on mm. more than they one occasion to not, to literally not shut it down. Mm. Even though it was, you know, generating a million dollars a year in profit right. at that point, wow. he literally wanted to shut it down. And so you can imagine like you own half of a business that generates a million dollars a year and you go into a, a meeting and somebody is telling you to shut it down. Wow. You're like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> I realize it's not a lot of money to you, but it's right. a huge thing yeah. for me. And um, so there was a period where, um, yeah, they wanted to sell it. I sort of had a bit of leverage with like my employment agreement and you know they sort of had to pay me for a while longer. Um, and had some stock and that kind of thing and sort of came to an agreement where, all right, why don't you, you don't really want me here anymore either. You know, we've already, we hired a new CEO for the business a couple months earlier. Mm. So it was clear that I was going to step down from the CEO role. Um, and, you know, why don't you just give me this business? You don't have to pay me out. You don't have to give me this other thing. So it was, mm. it was almost a cashless transaction. Mm. And um, that must have been pretty like baller to walk out the door with yeah, one I mean, of the, com was, I mean, having, having, um, gone through maybe a low moment there. Right. I mean, it must've been pretty awesome to walk out with one of the companies that you, yeah, I mean, again, that's another decision that in hindsight was like so clearly the right thing to do at the time. It was harder to wrap my head around because I was giving up a lot of cash and I was, you know, I was making a big investment in this thing and the business hadn't really grown for a while. And, I hadn't really spent that much time on it. I was told, you know, very early on after acquisition, not to spend any time on the t-shirt business. Um, yeah, I just wasn't sure. You know, again, it's, it seems it's very clear that it was the right thing for me to do. But right. um, and I had a similar thought process at that moment than I did when I was first starting out, which was, you know, I think if I like have this, like even though it's a small business, but if I have it and I have a couple people that are working with me, I don't have to start from scratch, and I can just sort of, you know try and like do good work every day, then we'll like build something else. Um, Which is basically a kind of return to where you yeah, started. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so that's what happened. So I, you know, I bought it back in May of 2011 and then spent the first year really just trying to like get the business back on track. There was a lot of low hanging fruit because no one had really paid much attention to it for mm -hmm. a few years um, and, you know, hired some good people. And then um, shortly after that, sort of had the idea to, you know, why don't we try and build like what's a reimagined version of this and T public is sort of what that was. And it's a model that is, you know, it's more of a platform and we have, you know, instead of us being the designers in our office, we have, you know, tens of thousands of designers and, um, you know, the ability to print things on demand. And so it's just, it's a much better business and, um, uh, and, you know, a lot more exciting, um, for a number of reasons. Um, and that's sort of, you know, what's brought me to today is, you know, that's the, the business I'm most focused on. Um, and again, I wouldn't have, and it's, you know, about five or six times as large as Busted Tees on a revenue basis now. Yeah. So it was... Um, and true to form, bootstrap, no venture yeah, money. Yeah, no venture money. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I feel, you know, really fortunate to have been able to start this business. It's been a really exciting thing. It's also, it's given me a lot of confidence that I had lost after being at you know, I see and, and working in that environment for a while, I sort of, you know, I think you start questioning, like, am I, was that a fluke? Was I, am I really like good at this or, mm. you know, and it wasn't, I wasn't sure. Um, and I think doing it a second time sort of made me feel a little more comfortable knowing that like, okay, I can do this again. Like it's sort of comebacks to you. It came, came back. Did to you, me. did you, did you find, so you said you started out with no real mentors or way of doing things did you find mentors along the way do you have mentors today now that you're kind of doing it again yeah yeah i mean i think it's i think yes when i moved to new york you know some of the first people i met or do you not or do you not need mentors oh today? i think everybody needs mentors yeah. i think you know i think i think mentors and maybe more importantly role models like just people who you can see who sort of did the thing that you want to do and it's hard to really like you look at, you know, you walk into like a News Corp office or something, you see like this huge building and like all, it's like such a complex organization. And like the idea of starting it is just like so overwhelming. Like you can't even like wrap your head around it. Right. But like it just started as like, you know, one guy. Right. And like it wasn't, um, it, it, it's, it didn't seem 
I don't think anybody, you know, was imagining it would become what it became like at that, right. you know, when Rupert was first, you know, for some context for yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. But you know, I think like in all businesses, uh, I think you look at these like huge corporations and it's just, you can't really wrap your head around it. But if you sort of can spend time with somebody who's done it and you sort of see like the steps that they took, then I think you can sort of create these like smaller tasks to like get there. And it's like, all right, I don't need to build News Corp. I just need to like get a couple people like looking at a web page. And like, if it's just me and like one other person, like that's enough for us to like subsist on ramen noodles or, you know, it's like, I think that's important, but so um, who are some of your role models? So some of the people, I mean, when I first moved to New York, some of the people I met right away were Fred Wilson, um, Jeremy Liu, who is, um, sure that like Jeremy, now, um, yeah. and, uh, Jeremy Phillips, who actually, I first met him in this building, mm-hmm. um, which was a funny story. Cause it was like in Rupert's like private dining room and like, it was like 24, 23. I'd never been in like a building like this. I don't think. And, you know, just seeing the, like, you know, tuxedoed butler like bringing him his like you know green juice whatever was pretty <laughs> pretty interesting experience it's like alan and co oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but um so yeah so those are all guys who were you know really helpful um and yeah. i think you know and they're all still people i you know keep in touch with and um i think you know having i mean that's one of the great things about living in a city like new york is there's just so many people that um and because I think of the type of community that existed in like media and tech when I first moved here, I mean, it feels a lot bigger now, but at the time it seemed like, you know, there was, um, you know, my buddy Sean Mills was running the onion, Nick Denton at Gawker, there was, you know, Rufus running nerve, you know, you kind of like knew everybody, um, mm-hmm. you know, Ben Lear had like just started Thrillist. Like they're just, you sort of knew everybody who was doing something at that point, or at least it felt that way. Um, and a lot of those people have become, you know, my closest friends. So it's sort of, you know, it's easy to kind of get advice on a lot of this stuff today just because the people that I'm just like hanging out with socially have yeah. done a lot of this stuff as well. So we should uh, we should switch um, directions just a bit. Uh, so you've never accepted a venture dollar. Correct. But, uh, but you invest in other, in other businesses. Correct. Um, when did when did you when and why did you make your first angel investment? You know, I've always I mean it's sort of cliche, but I've always, you know, for the most part just invested in people that I think are good and assume that they'll figure it out and haven't had, you know, I don't have some like specific investment thesis that's like really thought out. <laughs> it's very opportunistic and um you know, it's usually been um almost always it's, you know, I get a lot of like random people reaching out just like, you know, will you meet with me to talk about my business? And uh, it just is like a matter of principle. Like I say no to all of them. I really only will meet with people and consider investments if I know them personally or they're introduced to me by somebody who I respect and know personally. And like, otherwise it's just not, um, you know, there's no reason I'm not going to like take a cold, you know, I just don't have time for it. But out, out, out West, um, you have all these stories of people. I mean, it's like the standard, everybody, you sell your company, you put up your shingle, you're an angel investor. I assume that wasn't the plan. Like when did it even pop into your head that you might invest in even in a friend's company? Did they did they approach you? Did you offer capital? I mean, with that one in particular, I was literally out to dinner with my friend and she mentioned that she was doing this thing and that she was gonna like raise money. And I was like, oh, I'll invest. Right. Um, and then, um, I mean, it's usually, like like I said, I've really... I haven't made an effort to like seek out deals. It's really been like, you know, I invested in, um, like Henrik Werland brought me BarkBox um, when he, when it was just like this little, you know, idea. And basically I was like, this is, sounds stupid. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> why? it's why I was just like, why are you doing this? Right. Yeah, I mean, and um, what, what sounded silly about it? Just the fact just that thought, it was like, like the box thing was right. played out. Right. I was like, I just, you know, it's just like, a subscription service for dogs. I don't know. It just didn't sound like a big right. business to me. Um, and, but I really liked Henrik and I, you know, I didn't know Matt Meeker as well, but I thought he was really good and then they were doing it together. And I was like, you know, Henrik had to basically like beg me to give him money. And like, that's turned out to be one of the, you know, best investments I've made. Um, and again, it was, you know, ultimately it, 
the reason I did it. I, I thought the idea was stupid, right? It wasn't a stupid idea, but I thought it was at the time, but I thought that they were good and that's why I invested. So um, I think, you know, historically there's just so many examples of huge companies that get started, you know, doing something completely different. Um, like I think, what was it like Sony was like, you know, trying to start like a, like sell like sweet, like bean paste or something, you know, just like completely different stuff. Right. I mean, there's so many of those examples. And um, I think about with, you know, and that was with sort of like, you know, more traditional companies, but with tech, it's like you can, you know, start working on a project and three months into it, just pivot completely. And um, that's why I think it's, you know, it's so important that you just like think the founders are great. So, and I know you, you said in the past, you've spent some time as a venture partner at a fund. Did you ever consider investing full time or it, it's always been sort of just a sideline interest? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. And as I talk to the guys at First Mark, where I'm a venture partner, I've always said, you know, I, I like the idea of being like a little more of a VC, but not as much of a VC as you guys are. <laughs> like it's, it's fun to invest. It's fun, um, you know, to be involved with companies. I think, um, you know, first off, there's a lot of, it's a lot of great venture investments that just don't, I don't understand them. Like, you know, things, some of the like enterprise software and big data and just like these other categories of great businesses that I don't really have a great point of view on them and nor do I really care to like get educated. And it's not really that fun to be like the, you know, 10th smartest guy in the room on something. So there was like a whole segment of these investments that were coming in the door that I just added no value on. And then frankly, the stuff that I know the most about like media and commerce are not traditionally good venture investments. So that was another part of it. Um, but I think fundamentally I realized that like for me listening to people pitch their businesses all day, um, was a little exhausting and I prefer to just be like, you know, working on my own stuff yeah. and then taking those meetings opportunistically. Do you yeah. think you've gotten, uh, do you think you've improved as, as an angel investor over the years? Like, did you make any, like, uh, I mean, what's, we typically see even VCs and investors is the first couple of years, they're kind of learning, they're figuring out, they make some mistakes and, you know, they get a lot better over time. Yeah, I mean, I or, think... Or we do also see a, a number of people who decide to be angels, do it for a while, right. and look at how it's going and say, okay, I'm out. This right. is, this is right. not a good use of my money. These are not going as well as I expected. Right. I'm just going to step away. Yeah, I mean, first off, as like a percentage of like the money that I invest in stuff, like a very small portion is going into these deals. I try, I mean, I invest very small amounts. Um, you know, generally it's like, I'm the guy who's like asking for a favor to put in like half what the entrepreneur wants. And, you know, it's like almost not worth it for them to do the paperwork in some <laughs> of these instances. So that's sort of the first thing worth mentioning. Um, but aside from that, I think I think I've gotten better at just taking risk. I think I'm like by nature just pretty risk averse and um, I've just turned down so many good things that uh, just seemed like hmm. crazy in hindsight. Hmm. Um, What's the best thing you missed? I don't know. Like someone was trying to sell me secondary Facebook at, mm -hmm. um, at a $10 billion valuation and I was like, not only did I say no, I was like enthusiastically <laughs> no. Like, right. That's crazy. <laughs> Right. Ten billion dollars? You want me to buy at ten billion dollars? Like, I'm a seller all day long. You know that. I remember like telling people, I'm like, what, what kind of idiot thinks I'm going to buy Facebook at ten billion dollars? You know, yeah. and it's like like those types of things where it's just like so wrong, like so clearly wrong by like orders of magnitude. And um, and I think I also just um, it seems kind of unusual to for a founder to describe themselves as risk averse. Uh -huh. How do you how do you reconcile that with having started I mean, businesses. I've never taken past. any risk. I mean, I had started a business when I was in college. I had no expenses, right? So like if it had failed, I would have just been back to being a college student. By the time I graduated, I was already making more on the business than I was going to make getting a job, right? So right. like that was that didn't take risk. It's not like I left like, you know, I passed up like a fifty thousand dollar signing bonus at Goldman or something. Right. Like, so I, I didn't take any risk. When I left IAC, I was bringing a business with me that was already profitable. Like, yeah, I mean, I had to make an investment, but it was not one that was super, you know, it wasn't like putting my like family at risk financially to do the deal, right? And like, it was a profitable business. So like very, you know, not a huge amount of risk. Um, I've always sort of, you know, 
like Vimeo going back to that for is an example of this thing that's like, all right, it's like a binary outcome when you look at it in the early stage. And, you know, I don't really know how it's going to be a big business and can't really wrap my head around it. So like, I'm just sort of like pushing myself away from it. And I think that's the reaction I have to a lot of these things and why, you know, um, why when like my business partner, Jake was investing in Tumblr and, you know, the angel stage, I was, you know, didn't get it or, you know, some like mm. a lot of these types of businesses, Facebook, you know, in its early days, I didn't really understand how that was going to make money. You know, I, I've never been good at having like the huge vision for some of these mm. like really big meaty things. Right. So, um, for me, it's more about like building like actual businesses that generate revenue early on. Um, which isn't, again, that's sort of not a, always the best venture thinking. Right. right. Um, but that's what I've been better at. And just thinking about like, you know, like I've never really run a business that's lost money for more than like its first year. Right. So it's, uh, it's just a different way of thinking. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I've never had venture backing. I've always sort of bootstrapped it and, um, it's just a very different way of doing things. So when you, when you did decide to invest in, in funds as an LP, was that a, a conscious decision to manage those investments differently, or was it opportunistic in the way, in the same way that some of your angel investments were, yeah, where, where you met people who who invited you to do that? Yeah, I mean, so the best investment I've ever made in my life, assuming that Uber doesn't implode, is um, is lowercase, which is Chris Saka's fund, and Chris, uh, and that know, was the first fund. Yeah, and I met Chris um, probably ten years ago, and um, just thought. You know, was I, he at Google at the time? Yeah, where, he, where was, he was him? at yeah. Google. He's just like he's just a unique guy. I wasn't really like sure exactly what to make of him. He's not. He doesn't really fit the like traditional VC mold. But he was raising a small fund, and frankly, the way that he sold it to people is he was putting some of his Twitter shares in the fund that he'd already owned. So it was that sort he of had like done personally. Yeah, exactly. At um, at really like a you know a great valuation and it was sort of like, well, even if just to like have exposure to Twitter, this is kind of like a no brainer. And like, I think Chris is good. Right. So like, this is like an easy, it, it was sort of like, again, back to the, like not taking much risk. Mm. There wasn't much risk in this deal. It's like, there's already like Twitter shares in here. And I think mm. Twitter is like probably a winner at this point. Um, Although Twitter fits a slightly different profile than the investments that you typically like making. Right. Yeah, it's true. Um, so, but even at the time, you thought it was it was going to be a big business, yeah, even though it, seemed, it was maybe years away from. I mean, this was like I think when Twitter was valued at like half a billion dollars or something. So it was like oh, okay, it, that okay. it, it was not early. It has okay. already started okay. to like have a lot of traction. Um, but yeah, like Twitter is a perfect example of a company that I would have like a hundred times out of a hundred not invested in <laughs> at seed stage. <laughs> yes, right for sure. Right. Um, so that was the first fund that I did, and then. I mean, it was like and he raised he raised five million dollars. Oh wow, that first and, fund was five million bucks. Yeah, and he only called like three or something. And, wow. Um, so it was it was a really small fund, and then and that's and just so just so some of the audience understands, he raised five million dollars, but only ended up actually requiring a three million dollar investment because some of the early companies they that he invested in exited and returned capital. And so he recycled some of that capital. Is that correct? I, get, I don't know if how much he recycled or if he just like, you know, started making investments out of the next fund okay. or, or okay. what, but you know, it was like that fund was just like a, you know, who's who of like, right. you know, great companies. I mean, I think, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Uber. Um, and at what like point, at what point did you think, like, holy shit, this is going to be a ridiculously good It wasn't fight. until, you know, Uber, again, add that to the list of companies that I would have passed on. I right. You know, even when um, a good friend of mine, Josh Moore, is running Uber for New York, and when he, when he took that job, I was like, oh, that's, that's a neat little thing for you to work on. You know, I just, I really right. didn't get it. Like, I thought this was like a, I thought this was like a service for rich people to take, like, black cars. It never... It was lost on me, like the greater vision. And then when like Uber started to kind of pick up some steam, I only after it picked up steam, I was just like looking at our like capital account statement for the fund. And I was like, oh, Uber's on there. That's kind of cool. Hmm. And then Uber raised its like $3 billion round. And all of a sudden the value of our stake in the fund was up like 10X or something. You know, it was, it was like, wow, this is like, this is pretty real. Right. Um, and then I was, you know, 
again, one of the nice things about being an investor in a fund in this type of situation is like, if you had asked me at that moment, like, do you want to sell your Uber shares at a $3.5 billion valuation? I would have probably been like, yeah, because I didn't, you know, it seemed crazy to me. Um, but fortunately, I was not able to sell. Right, right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it, it just sort of, you know, turned out to be um, uh, this amazing fund. And um, so it was sort of like, the first time I ever went into a casino was with my dad and we were in, visiting London and I won a couple hundred dollars on the roulette table with like a $20 bill that I'd put down. And my dad was like, this is a really bad thing to have happen on your first, right. you know, <laughs> your first experience gambling is to like win so much. And um, I think I, you know, I feel a little bit like that with this fun where it's just like, it's, it's such an anomaly and, um, you know, will never happen again, but it was just sort of, you know, fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. What, what other, you're an investor in a, in a few funds? Uh, so, yeah, I'm also an investor in Union Square. Ventures heard of those, and, heard of those guys. Uh, the little boutique fund yes, here in New York right. City. That's right. <laughs> and um, First Mark and, uh, and Lear Ventures. And, and then Slow Ventures actually now. Okay, okay. Um, what, tell us a little bit about the evaluation process other than just you trusted them, you liked them, you had a good feeling, that's it. like that's it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like, I know all of the people who are running all of those funds personally, and that's why I invested in them. There's no other reason. Like, I, uh, I mean, obviously, um, you know, are there a lot of other, I mean, you're presumably putting in, I mean, let's say US Union Square Ventures raises a $100 million fund. I assume you're putting in a relatively small, small yeah. investment. Um, that's unusual. I mean, do they do they accept a lot of individuals, or it's just a close no, I personal think it's, relationship? I think it's just um, a function of just like being friends with yeah. you know partners and you know some of these funds, and it's um, you, you know I think time, of it as yeah. I I view it as a uh, a favor or a um, you know an, uh, them giving me the opportunity more so than like. You know, it's, they're not selling me on like they don't need my money. Like, right. They're always oversubscribed. Right. All of these funds, right. um, for the most part. So, um, I think a lot of them will just so have basically like a small the opposite of how we pitched you a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know for the next fund. Um, I have one last question, and then you can ask any questions yep. you want. Um, you run uh, Busted Tees and Tea Public today. Is it as much fun as it was running College Humor and Busted Tees and Vimeo uh, 10 years ago? And right. how does it compare? Yeah, I mean, it it is a lot of fun. It's very different, you know, being 23 to 25 versus being 33 to 35. I think it's a just a different, you know, it's such a different place in life. I think the difference, primary difference was Back then, I had nothing else really going on. I didn't have a serious relationship. I was just like all in on this business. Now I have two kids. I have a wife. I really, you know, care about them more than the business, frankly. So that is just a a different mm -hmm. thing. And um, fortunately, having the business that I have allows me to spend as much time with them as I would like. And that's you know part of why I love you know what I do and being able to have that kind of flexibility. Um, is really important to me. Um, but you know, it is, uh, it is a lot of fun. I, I think, you know, there was, um, definitely a period of time after I sold the company, the, you know, Connective Ventures, um, and was sort of at the end of my tenure at IEC, I can remember thinking like, you know, maybe I just sort of like had like, you know, career heroin, you know, and mm -hmm. I'm never going to like, you know, get there again. I sort of had this high that was just like a once in a lifetime thing. And, um, but I, I do feel it now, and I feel like you know it took me a couple years to get back there. But um, you know, having a business that's growing quickly, and you know, working with people that I really like every day, and um, you know, it's different because I'm not like rolling up my sleeves and like doing as much of like the individual contrib you know contributions that I was doing when it was just for people. Um, so it, it feels different in that regard. Um, I'm also you know, I'm home at seven. I'm not, you know, staying late drinking beers in the office every night, but you know, the other guys are, and they're, you know, right. we still have that culture. It's just, I'm not quite as much a part of it and that's fine. It's, you know, it's just, a, again, just being a different place in life, but, but yeah. Thank you.
Incredibly yeah, um, so much. Uh, fantastic chatting for an hour. And um, I appreciate you spending the time. For sure. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lyons, partners at Notation Capital. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or on AngelList. We'd like to thank our friend Sapphire Ventures for sponsoring this debut series. Sapphire Ventures is a global venture capital firm that invests in growth stage technology companies as well as early stage venture firms across the technology landscape. Sapphire Ventures shares our desire to bring transparency and candor to the venture ecosystem. We're very grateful to be collaborating with them on this project. We'd also like to thank Ben Glowey, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound. Finally, we'd also like to thank our friends at Mattermark who are helping us with distribution and making an amazing product. You should try it, mattermark.com.